We're going to dive in. I hope you remember <laughs> what came before 1 Thessalonians 4, because I think a letter should be read like a letter. And sometimes we cherry pick, and you know, there's not too much wrong with cherry picking because there's a lot of verses that by themselves just are full of uh, good stuff, but I think you'll get even more out of it if you view the whole thing as a big letter. And uh, if even if you view the scripture as one long story of, of God, not, and when I say story, I don't mean it's made up. I just mean that God has been through it and in it all. And when you see Jesus all throughout the scripture and you see redemption all throughout the scripture, suddenly it comes alive. And uh, you realize that what God began in the garden, he's finishing. And uh, we are a part of that. We get to be a, a part of what God is doing on the earth. And I don't believe that we'll spend the rest of our lives after this life ends uh, up in heaven strumming harps eating cream cheese. Like, it's going to be, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Earth will be rolled up like a scroll, but it's also going to be redeemed. And so, um, what we learn here, what we, what we experience here is going to serve us well in eternity. Um, as much as I'm looking forward to the moments around the throne of God worshiping him, I believe that he's going he's gonna to do what he created us to do, which is give us a task. I think we'll be doing something throughout eternity. I don't think we'll just be sitting around eating ice cream or whatever your view of heaven is. Uh, new heaven, new earth. You know, God put man in a garden before there was sin. Like work is not a bad thing. <laughs> we were designed for it. You know, God is a creator. So we are too. And I believe that we're going to be you know, have our hands in the garden um, even long after this, this earth ends, you know. And so ask me what that looks like, and I sure can't tell you. I just, I do believe that we're preparing for that even now. Um, you know, there was a, um, there's a Christmas carol, and one of the lines says, and, and fit us for heaven to live with you there. And throughout time, some people didn't understand that line, so they, they changed it to take us to heaven to live with you there. Um, but, you know, as good as that is, I, I don't think that, I, I like the original uh, purpose of the song, which is fit us for heaven. We're being changed back to our original purpose. We're, we're coming back to our original uh, owner's manual, to what we were designed for. And I used to think that heaven was being fitted for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like whatever I liked, that's what heaven was going to be. You know, if I like cotton candy, my house is going to be made of cotton candy, right? But I, I've come to know the closer we grow to God and to Jesus through him, I'm, well, Jesus is God, God is Jesus. You know, all of this, the closer we grow to God, the more we like what he likes. Yeah. And heaven's not changing to meet my needs. Mm-hmm. I'm changing to fit heaven. Right. My desires are, are changing to desire what he desires, so I, I think that's a great thing. And, and we've said this before, and this will tie into what we're talking about tonight. But um, honestly, if you think of the new heaven and the new earth, what makes heaven amazing? What makes it so great? What makes heaven the best place you could have absolutely imagine? It's not that you can eat all the ice cream you want. What makes heaven work and what will make the new earth work Remember, here's the key. This is why the, the swords will be turned into plowshares. This is why the lion will lay down with the lamb. This is why the kid will play with snakes and not be fearful is because Jesus is on the throne. The reason heaven, the new heaven and new earth work is because God's will is always done. That's why it works. That's why it's good. If we could figure out now that we want heaven on earth, we pray what Jesus told us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's will is done here, you get a taste of heaven right here. You get to experience what makes heaven so amazing. What makes a new earth so amazing is God's will being done. So if we, if we will just forget the lie that the world told us, that doing our own thing outside of God's will is the way to happiness. If we would really buy into what Jesus said, that the path to joy is to do what the Father has designed us to do, that that's the way we're really going to be satisfied. That's the way we're really going to find life. If we buy into that, you'll experience that life, that, that wonder, that joy right here. I believe that to the core of my being. 
And I think the sooner we buy into that, the more you're going to find out this is what I was created for. I've said it before, but, you know, I, I, if I had a guitar pick and I handed this guitar pick to Randy and said, drum with this guitar pick, it's not going to do very, it's not going to work. If the pick could talk, the pick would be frustrated. <laughs> Randy can talk, and I know he'd be frustrated. If the drums could talk, they'd say, what in the world are you trying to do here? See, this pick is wonderfully designed. I mean, I don't know if you notice, if you can see from there, but it's, it's wide over here, and it gets thin right here. It's got little grippy marks. It's perfectly designed for me to hold it and pluck a string. What it's designed for is to play guitar, and it's well-designed. And I like my picks at a certain gauge. I, I, I like them to be a certain thickness. And when I get a pick that's just right, it's, it's designed well, it's the right thickness, it's got grips at the right places, it's a beautiful, it's fun for me to play with, it works well. And if we would just figure out that we were created by an intelligent creator, you were created for a purpose. And when you buy into that purpose and you say, okay, not my idea, but your idea. What you created, I want what, I want what you created me for. That's what I want to do with my life. You'll find the joy of a tool that fits the task perfectly. What does the Bible say? We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works that we might walk in them. That God, or sorry, created for good works that God has prepared for us beforehand that we might walk in them. I've said this before, but listen to that. We've been created for the task, and the task was created for us. We are a special design tool that fits the task perfectly. And I think that's where you're going to find satisfaction. When you, when you just fit into what you were created for, you'll realize why you were created the way you were created. Oh, this makes sense. Humanity makes sense. The world makes sense. Everything makes sense when you say, I have a creator. Now, here's the thing. The world has rejected their creator. Many, many people in the world have rejected the idea that there is a creator. And Romans 1 tells us that's the source of a lot of our problems. In fact, all of our problems was that, that at some point in history, we used to look at the mountains and say, proof of God. We used to look at the sun and say, God is great. And then when we stopped giving glory and thanks to God, to our creator, it says we were given over to the futility of our mind. We started, we started thinking that, well, maybe it was all a big cosmic accident, that maybe it was just, you know, something blew up and stuff started happening. And when we start believing that, then he, he I mean, Romans 1 describes the snowball effect of what happens. When we go over to the twisted ideas about life, then everything becomes twisted. Our worship becomes twisted and misdirected. It says we worship things and the created things rather than the creator, and ourselves being one of those created things that we could worship. And it says that our ideas about sexuality get messed up. Why? Because now we're just seeing, if I don't have a creator, then whatever feels good at the moment, that, that's what's going to work for me. But that's not what's going to bring you satisfaction and joy and fulfillment in life. And this ties into what we're going to talk about tonight. All of this ties in to something that pops up over and over in the letters to the churches in the, in the New Testament, specifically the churches that were um, from pagan nations, the churches where they weren't of Jewish origin, but they were living in Greek societies, Roman societies. Because let me tell you, if you think 2017 has some messed up ideas about, about uh, marriage and sexuality and, and all of that, it's nothing new. And maybe that may, gives you some relief. The, the stuff that we're seeing today, is, it's all been played out before. Mm -hmm. You look at Greek and Roman history around the time that Paul's writing these letters, this is nothing new. At the highest levels of government, there were some twisted ideas about what we did with our bodies. And I remember reading of certain emperors, I won't get too deep into this because I don't want to put thoughts in your head, but... Not that you would go out and do it. I just don't want to ruin your night, your night. But the things that these guys would do and weren't ashamed of it. 
you know, the, 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 the way they would use the slaves around them, the way they would, the way they would fulfill whatever weird desire came in their head and, and not really hide it, but it's out in the open, tells you that culture at every level had been twisted. Yeah. Graffiti did not start in the 20th century. Graffiti was around in the ancient Roman Empire, and some of the stuff they wrote was just straight up perverse. You know, Tia and I were in Montreal last year, and we went to the uh, museum there, and they had a wonderful exhibit on Napoleon, and they had a wonderful exhibit on Pompeii. And I don't know if you know about Pompeii, but it was the, most of you probably, probably do, it was that town uh, or city in ancient Rome, right on the island there, that was destroyed by a volcano. And uh, the volcanic ash came so fast, and the, the lava came so fast, that um, there were, you know, in the, in the ash and in, in all of that, uh, in the instant heat, there were pockets where people were, dogs were, that, that for centuries were preserved. In fact, we can see it today. You can go to the museum and see how, what somebody looked like the moment they died because that the, the volcanic eruption was so quick and came upon them so fast that you could see, you know, they, they made molds out of the pockets where you could see where a dog was laying down and trying to shield himself from the, uh, the ash or children or, or people. And, and that's troubling. I mean, I, it, it, it's really hard to see. But Tia, before we even got to the destruction of the city, she was already really ready to leave. And I was like, Tia, are you okay? And she's like, I don't like this at all. And the reason was, was because as we were walking through, there was such idolatry and there was such sexual perversion. And often those two things went together. And so as we're walking through this city, they were open about some messed up stuff. I mean, it was not like hidden in the back room. It was in public. And uh, you're walking through this going, wow, these people are just perverse. Like, this is stuff you should not, you should, there should be some a shame involved. You should not be proud of this. But they were. And so I know Tia, with her heart just sensitive to the Lord, she was already like, I want to get out of here. Because she just didn't want to see it anymore. And so, I mean, you know, by the time we moved through it, we were spiritually worn out. You know, the Bible talks about Paul walking through the idols and how he was vexed in his spirit. He was greatly troubled in his spirit. That's the way we felt because it was such wickedness. So I want you to know that you might think the Bible was written so long ago, they don't know what we're dealing with today. But let me tell you, this is all an old movie that's already played out. I mean, and we're doing the same thing that the Romans and Greeks did. We're celebrating the things that are perverse and twisted. We're calling evil good and we're calling good evil. And by we, I mean our culture. And we have to be aware of this. I know I'm taking a long time to get to the verse here, but I just want to set up with this thought that we need to be aware that a worldview is being painted by people who have denied the existence of God. So every movie we watch, every commercial we see, Every show we watch regularly, you need to be aware that it is a worldview being pushed on you by people that deny the very center of creation. So don't be surprised if you fill yourself with that stuff that you start saying, well, is the Bible really that true? Is that really, well, is that necessary? Is that going a bit far? Because you become shaped by what you fill your mind and your heart with. So, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, in our house, you know, we watch some movies. We don't have TV, but we watch some TV shows on, online. Uh, we try not to do too much of it, but we do. But some people just throw the whole thing out, good on you. I mean, you got to do what the Lord tells you to do, but just be aware. Sometimes we say, well, if it's rated PG, it's good for me. Or if it's rated G, it's good for me. Well, that's good, but, you know... Um, whether or not there's graphic elements or, or language in, in what you're watching, there is an agenda and there is a worldview. I've seen G-rated shows that had a strong agenda behind them. And so we need to be aware of that. Listen, this is not about you being freaked out that the world's coming in. This is about you saying, I want to be shaped by God's worldview. Because there is a creator and he knows more than I do. Right? Right? We live in a culture that says, if you explain it to me and tell me why it's good, then maybe I'll believe it. 
I believe this. God wants to show you why it's good. But if you would trust him to start with and say, even if I don't get it, you're right. That's the right attitude. Even when I don't fully know why this benefits me, my obedience is not about whether it benefits me or not, but whether or not I want to obey the God who created me, trusting that anything he tells me will benefit me. Now, maybe I don't understand it right at first, just like Moses doesn't understand everything we tell him to do. He'll understand it later. I'm sure he doesn't know. I'm, I'm sure I, for a part of him says, you know, I got to go to school all of those days next year. You know, when he gets to kindergarten, I mean, can't we just stay home? And, and he doesn't know some of the things he's learning. You know, how many of you said, when am I ever going to use this in life? You know, everybody applies it to algebra or things like that. But, you know, if you really were to think of it, you do use these things. And even if you didn't use those things, by learning those things, it exercised parts of your brain that cause you to develop and to grow. And that's good. But just because you didn't understand it at the time doesn't mean it wasn't right. So if we accept that our creator knows us best because he created us, who knows, the, who knows the design better than the designer? And we know that two things. First of all, he's way more intelligent than us. And second, he loves us with an infinite love. So he's not playing a cruel joke on us. He's not just trying to torment us for his amusement. Everything he does is done out of love. When you believe that he wants what's good for me and best, and he wants the best for me more than I want it, then you'll trust him. And I want us to keep that in mind as we move to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 3 um, talks about love abounding in us and that as we love, that God's holiness is being perfected in us. Um, and that he's establishing our hearts in a way that we're without blame when we stand before God uh, at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's an amazing thought that, that we will stand before Jesus without blame. Isn't that awesome? That he's preparing for himself a bride worth presenting. Now, I, I know a lot of people say, well, we need to get our act together because God's coming back for a church without spot or blemish. And I understand the thought. But if you think we can just kind of try harder so that we don't have spot or blemish, then maybe you're not paying attention to what it said. Without spot or blemish, these are small imperfections. So if you think we can just try harder and have no imperfections, the whole church, zero imperfections, then I don't know how you plan to do that. I believe that it's got to be his work that gets that done. He's the one that makes that happen. Because without spot or no wrinkle, Have you been around church people? I mean, come on, guys. He's going to come back and there's not even a wrinkle? That's got to be something he did. Because I, we are just, I mean, come on. I have much belief in God's work through the church. <laughs> but I think when he comes back, he's not going to find 100% perfection in all of us in our action. But he will find the blood of Jesus making us who we need to be. His holiness becoming our holiness. That said, that affects the way we live. That will cause us to live differently. Because when we know who we are, then we want to walk as we are and live as we are. So here, he's talking about as we love, it's a demonstration of the holiness that's in us. And then he says in chapter 4, finally then, brethren, and when he says finally then, he doesn't mean wrapping up the letter, but he's, he's really getting to a point of major importance. Of, this is of big importance. And, and you know what? It's not just in this letter. It's through a lot of Paul's letters. In fact, if you look at the letters he writes to the churches in Greek and Roman cities, this comes up over and over again. It comes up to the Corinthian church a lot. It comes up to these guys. Remember, they're new believers. They need some instruction. He says this, finally then, brothers and sisters, we request and we exhort you in the Lord Jesus. These are two... Um, uh, phrases. So first he says, I ask you, but then I'm urging you. And he doesn't just say, this is coming from me. He says, in the Lord Jesus. So that's, that's the authority he's using. In Jesus, I'm saying this. That as you receive from us instruction is how you ought to walk and please God, just as you all actually do walk, that you excel still more. I think that's good to hear. He's saying, you guys are already walking in a way that's pleasing to God. That's good. But there's room for improvement. 
Isn't that good? That's good news. I, I think we could all say that about ourselves. You're walking in a way that's pleasing to God. You're doing good, but there's room to excel even more. There's room to, to step up a level. And I, I know this, we all can say this, that if God had showed us when we got born again all the things we needed to fix, you probably would have given up right then. Like if he just gave you a list of here's all the ways you need to step up, you'd just been like, well, there's no hope for me. See ya, goodbye. So what does he do? Step by step, he begins to change us and he says, Here, here's where you're at. Let's, let's get up off the floor and let's start to, to walk and then let's start to jog and let's start to run. And I think anytime God reveals a new area for you to step up and be more like him, then there's always the strength, the grace to get it done. So here he's saying, I, I'm going to tell you how to excel more. For you know what commandments we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. That's a big word, commandments. By the authority of Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification." So that he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's a big thought. What he's saying is, guys, this is not a small matter. This is a big deal. And I'm going to tell you this by the authority of Jesus. This is not optional. This is not, if you feel like it, let's do this. This is, by the authority of Jesus, this is a commandment. And he tells you, this is the will of God. That you walk in this way. Now, the word immorality, sexual immorality here, is the word porneo. It, you might recognize it. It's the word we get pornography from. It's, uh, but, but it's not just talking about what you put in front of your eyes. It was every type of sexual immorality. So, really, it's talking about sex outside of marriage or uh, sexual relations when you are married with someone who's not your spouse. Or, you know, even Jesus said the thoughts and the, and the things you're entertaining that may not, you may not have walked them out, but you've, you've said these are good in your own heart and you've desired it and thought about it and lusted after it in your own heart. And in doing so, you've already done some damage in your heart that, that would have happened if you, if you actually did the, the actual act. And so this is a big deal. And he's having to tell them this because guys, they live in a culture that says it's not a big deal. But it sounds familiar, doesn't it? They live in a culture, in fact, where part of the idolatry and part of the worship and religious practices that their neighbors took part in involved uh, sexual immorality, involved temple prostitutes, involved things like that. Um, it wasn't weird in their culture for you to have a slave as well as your spouse and you, and you used your slave when your spouse didn't want to do stuff, you used your slave. And I'm trying not to get too graphic here, but, you know, it wasn't weird for them to do that. It wasn't odd for rich guys to have a mistress. It, that was accepted. So that's kind of messed up. But it's not that different from our culture. Our culture says, oh, come on, guys, you're, you're waiting till you're married? How do you know if you haven't test drove the vehicle? Like, this is the kind of stuff they say. It's, it's so messed up that people look at you weird. I mean, I mean, we don't have kids here tonight, so I'm, let me just say, like, you know, our brother Jared, you know, if he told somebody, I'm waiting till I'm married, I'm saving myself for marriage, automatically people look like, what kind of weird, what are you, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Like, that's not a, like, you know, some people might say with a strained smile, oh, good for you. In the back of their head, they're like, Something's wrong with that kid. You know, his mind isn't right. Yeah. I mean, we are odd, aren't we? And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't that odd to say that a couple hundred years ago because we lived in a society that held God's standard as, as a standard for culture. But culture has shifted. And here's why it's shifted. Because people don't really believe in God. Right? So it's not weird that they think that. Whatever feels right. Listen, if we don't, here's, here's the great truth of humanity. The great truth of humanity is that we are different than all the other creatures on the planet. 
We are. We were made in the image of our creator. Can't say that about a fish. Can't say that about a gorilla. As much as they might look like us, they were not made in the image of God. We are the only ones with an eternal soul. I hate to spoil your all dogs go to heaven (laughs) argument, and maybe you can have that debate on your own, but they're different than us. You know, we, we, we taught our little shih tzu how to act like he's praising the Lord. But you know what? He's not really praising the Lord. Maybe you taught your little dog how to fold his hands and act like he's praying. He's not really giving his heart to Jesus. Right? Jesus died. And I believe through the, through the work of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, eventually all of creation will be redeemed. Everything's going to be redeemed. Creation was damned in the garden, and Jesus rose in a garden. Everything will be made right. But we're the only ones who get the choice to choose whether or not we will accept that redemption. And all of creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of us as the sons and daughters of God. So here's the thing. When society rejects the creator, we regress back into an animal nature. Because when we embrace the fact that we have a creator, we believe there's something different about us. We have the choice to choose. We have the, we have the opportunity to, to live like our creator, to have control. But what do animals do? They do whatever they feel, right? Animals... Go to the bathroom where they want to go to the bathroom until they learn that if they go to the bathroom in the living room, they get their behind swatted or they, they, they get their treats taken away. Then they learn, okay, I'm not going to do that. But it's not because they made a moral choice. Your dog doesn't say, hmm, I think, I think there's a higher way to live. And that is for me to go to the, for, for me to wait to relieve myself till I get outside. They just learn there's consequences. So that's what they're reacting to. Animals are driven by instinct, by what they feel. Human beings have the choice to reject that and say, I may feel like this, but I'm not going to do that. Proof? Plenty of human beings feel like killing somebody, but you don't, (laughs) right? Now, maybe the reason you don't is because you know you'll go on trial for murder if you do, right? That's living under the law. But as believers, I have to believe that the folks in this room, if there was no law and this was like the Wild West and you knew you would never be caught, you still wouldn't kill anybody because you're changed, because we're different, because we believe there's a higher law, there's a higher way to live and we'd become like God and we love like he loved us and love is the perfect fulfillment of the law. So since we love our neighbors, we don't want to kill our neighbors, right? Since we love God, we want to be like him. We believe that he created us for our good, that he knows the way we've been designed because he's the designer. So we have, to, we have to be just like the Thessalonians were in their day and reject culture's idea. Because God created our sexuality. He created it. It is good. It's a really good thing. And I know throughout history, people think Christians just are real uncomfortable with their sexuality. Let me tell you, we believe it's good. God created it for our good. But anything that God created good, the enemy wants to twist. And anything good that's twisted becomes bad. Right? Fire is good. Right? Fire is a great gift to mankind. We cook. We stay warm. It keeps predators away if you're, in a, if you're out in the woods. Fire is a wonderful thing. Fire is important to life. But fire out of control, all of a sudden, instead of being something that provides life, is something that can, that can bring death, right? If it's not controlled, what was good becomes bad. Some of you go hunting. You got a gun. That gun and the bullets in the gun are a good thing. They will help you get what you're trying to get. They'll help you get some food to bring back for your family. But you go hunting with a guy who can't control what he's shooting at, that's not good anymore. Right? So God gave us desire as a good thing. And he didn't have to, guys. He could have just said, 
You want to have a baby? Here's the process. And it wasn't good, and we didn't want to do it, but we wanted kids, so we go through it. But he didn't. He made it good and lovely and fun and, and something that we want. But if we lose sight of why it was created and we lose control, you see, one of the greatest things is God is never out of control. And when we gave up dominion to Satan, we lost control and dominion over creation, including our own bodies. We couldn't control our urges. We couldn't control our lusts, our passions. But when Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, our lust, the Bible says our passions and our our uncontrollable lusts were crucified. So we're not slaves anymore. We were slaves. We had to, we, we tried to stop. You ever talk to somebody who keeps trying to live right and they can't and they try and they can't and they keep falling back. Here's the beautiful thing. Through Jesus Christ, we have victory. Amen. It's painted in Romans 7 who says, I can't, con- I mean, I, I, the things I want to do, I can't do. I, I, I'm, I'm chained to this body of death. But then that's only a setup for Romans 8 and, and the end of Romans 7, which says, thanks be to God. God gives us the victory over our, our flesh. So we can, we can say, I'm not like an animal. I am created in the image of God. I can, I can control this body. I can, I can live like I want to live. I'm not a slave anymore. I'm free. Many people will tell you that the Bible's idea of how we live and of sexuality is slavery. It's bondage. Oh, it's rules you have to follow. But God paints it differently. You're free now. You were slaves to what you felt like you had to do. But you're not slaves anymore. Now you're free. You have control again. You're not driving a vehicle that's out of control. You now have control again. And God knows us better than we know ourselves. You know, um, in 2017... Like I said, it's a lot like it was back here where people are being saved out of the world. Thank God. Thank God we're not just a bunch of people that only, that the church only grows when we, when our, when we have kids. Like the church is growing rapidly. People are getting saved. And when we get saved, all of us have to renew our mind and think totally different. The world is different. Because you went from a worldview that had nothing to do with the creator to a worldview that centered on him. Like suddenly life has meaning again. If you've read secular philosophers like Nietzsche or, uh, um, you know, like Sartre, these guys that talk about existence, it's the most depressing stuff in the world. Because they've given up on the idea of God. So they say, life has no real purpose. Life has no real meaning. It's just sadness. It's just go through life and die someday and turn back into worm food. But once you believe in God, life's got meaning again. Suddenly I understand why I'm here. This is good. So when we got saved, we, we said, God, you, I don't know you yet like I want to know you, but I know something that you loved me and I know you created me and I want what you want for me because I know you want good things for me. Sometimes we have to be told what those things are because you're still relearning how to live. And he says here, I want, I want to read you something once again in verse five, or verse four and five, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Some translations say, and he's talking to the men, that you would know how to obtain a wife and not possess a wife, because you can't possess a wife. <laughs> you, know, you, you and I well know that the Bible says we're co-heirs, husband and wife are co-heirs of the grace of God. So we don't own anybody and they don't own us, but we give ourselves to one another. He says that, so some translations read this as that you would obtain, a, acquire a wife with sanctification and honor, not in passion. So if you read it that way, I think both of them stand up. If you read it that way, it means that when I get married, I honor the person I married. And I don't just get married to control my own uncontrollable lusts. Because if that's your reason for getting married, you're going to have problems in marriage. 
<laughs> for real. <laughs> you get some young teenagers like, I won't have, I won't, man, this, these urges and, and, and this stuff I want to look at online, it won't be an issue when I get married. It'll be an issue. If you can't control it now, it'll still be an issue when you get married. Yeah, get control of it now. Get, get God in on this. Let Jesus in on this. Let his power in on this. Because you got to know that that spouse is not just there to, just to make you feel good. That we give ourselves to one another. It's not about what can you do for me. It's about what God can do for you. That's honor. Honor, like I said earlier, in the scripture means to value highly. So we got to honor God, value him highly. You got to honor your own body, value it highly. The Bible says let the marriage bed be held in honor. It says we need to honor our husbands and our wives. Hold them in honor, value them highly. And then it says in verse 5, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is so important. What's the solution to all this? Knowing God. That's how everything's made right again. That's how you have victory in these areas, is to know him. I'm not telling you it's about knowing all the facts about God and knowing all the theology points. It's about knowing him. Growing closer to God. The closer you get to God, the more you're changed to be like him. He says, don't live like the world because the world doesn't know God. Their actions are proof they don't know God. But you're different. You know him. And we're growing closer and we're knowing him even more. And I, I, I know this, that, that I live, I, I, I can tell you this honestly, and I, I mean this humbly, is that the way I live and, and, and the way my wife and I live and, and the way we, we walk out our lives in every area, I'm not living the way I live out of fear that if I live differently, I'll be kicked out of pastoring. My reason for living the way I live is because I love Jesus. So I live like that. I want to live like it. I understand if I just decided to act like the world and live like the world, I probably would not be qualified to be pastor anymore. But that's, it's not fear that's driving me. It's love that drives us. And so the more I know God, the more I want to be like him. The more I know that he loves me, the more you get to know that your creator loves you. You trust him. And you say, if you say so, boss, because I know you love me more than I love myself. No, you could be the biggest egotist in the room. You could think you're God's gift to humanity. You could think you are the greatest person to walk the planet, and you still don't love yourself as much as God loves you. Right? So when you really believe that, then when he says, this is what marriage looks like, but God, what about this? God, what about that? If he created it, and it's good. Trust him. When I do weddings, I like to remind the couple and the audience that marriage is something that was around before there was sin. When God said this is good, perfect. Marriage wasn't a response to sin. Marriage wasn't like, you guys are out of control. I'll give you something to help. <laughs> right? Here, this is, a, this is a release valve. You know, this is just going to mm, just, just try not to, just try to stay in control. Okay, guys, help each other. You know, marriage was created before there was ever any evil in the world. In fact, it's a picture of the unity of God. I don't want to get too deep into this, but scholars have talked about the fact that somehow, you know, Paul says that marriage is a mystery and it illustrates Christ in the church. Well, it also illustrates the unity of the Trinity as well. And you know that everything feminine and everything masculine that is good came from God. So all the feminine qualities that, are, that come from God are found in him and all the masculine qualities that are good came from him too because it says male and female he created them in his image so it's not like he created man in his image and then women was like like a weird defect from that (laughs) woman is just as much the image of God as man and so there's been some brilliant theologians and scholars that have brought out the point that in that union of man and woman 
we're seeing parts of God that we don't find in ourselves, in one another, and that there's a physical act of marriage that is a physical demonstration of a spiritual union. And that's why it's meant to be taken place within covenant. You think about it, outside of covenant, that intimacy between a man and a woman is all about, I want you to make me feel good. But within marriage, I vowed my life to you. I'm yours, you're mine. I'm not, this isn't so you make me feel good or you fulfill my needs. This is us giving to one another. This is a demonstration of a great covenant between one another. And it's a demonstration that God has created us as people of covenant. So it's not about what I can get from you. It's about we're one. And this is a demonstration of that oneness. Gentiles who don't know God, don't look at it that way. Can I give you a, a section of scripture that bugs me? <laughs> in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man in the church. Many people believe he was in an area of leadership. He wasn't just like a new believer who just got off the street, but probably somebody who'd been there for a while because he had some influence. And um, he took up with his dad's wife. So not his mom, but his stepmom. And they started having relations, and, and the whole church knew about it. And we we're kind of like, well, that's not my business. It's between you and Jesus. But here's why it bugs me, because Paul said, you've all become arrogant, and you all should have mourned. Well, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. I'm living a good life. Why, is it, why, why should I have mourned? Because if we really love one another, then when one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one of us is broken, we're all broken. What's the response? He doesn't say you all should have just smacked that guy upside the head, although that might have done him some good. He said our first response should have been to mourn, to say this isn't right. And God, help us, because something is broken that needs to be healed. This isn't right, and it's hurting all of us. He said that by them just saying, well, it's not my business, they were arrogant. That bugs me because it's like, well, now I'm not just responsible for me. We're responsible for one another. And there's a way to do that. You know, when Jesus said, you better take the log out of your own eye, the plank out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, he's not saying you should never try to take a speck out of somebody's eye. Because he finishes the thought with this. First, take the plank out of your own eye, Jesus says, so that you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, we've, we've, we've said that so many times as if that's, well, it's just judgment and it's just wrong. It's just hurting one another. Listen, let's just get practical. You have a speck in your eye. It hurts. You won't like that. Nobody likes walking around with a sliver in their eye. I mean, you would be doing me a great service by taking it out, but not if you got a plank in your own eye. You'll be poking in all the wrong places. You're going to do more damage than good. I don't want to go to a doctor and say, doctor, I've got, I've got something in my eye. It's been there for a long time. And he's like, I forgot my glasses. I can barely see you, but let me get my tweezers. No, stay away from me. <laughs> stay back. You are not qualified. So Jesus says, he doesn't say, stop worrying about specs. Specs are no big deal. He doesn't say that. He says, but, you know, take care of your own business first. Because you'll do more damage trying to help somebody out when you haven't even looked at your own plank. You'll do more damage trying to help them than, than good. So what do you do? Let God help you with your issues, and you can help your brother with his. Then in 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about this, more about sexual immorality. And I, I want to read you a few verses just so you can get a, a 3D picture of, of what we're talking about here. You know, I, I, I honestly think, because I know sometimes, like, talking about this stuff, half the people in church are like, I know this, it's has not an issue for me. And half the, ch half the church is like, he, he knows what I'm up to, and he's probably looking at me the whole time. I really think this stuff needs to be talked about more in our culture, because it's a bigger deal in our culture. And like, think about, and, and I'm not trying to condemn you here, like, let, let the Holy Spirit be your guide, but think about the stuff you've, the movies you've watched. 
Think about the shows you watch. When I was younger, if there was like, if there was like sexual immorality even implied, we didn't watch it. Now, it's as long as they don't show it that people say, that's the line. Hey, well, of course it's going to be there, but they don't show anything too graphic. And then it's moved to, well, they show some stuff, but you don't see everything. Like, it, it just keeps, the line keeps moving. And here's the issue. The issue is we start, what we, what, it, what we let entertain us, it won't entertain you unless you accept it. Right? If I made jokes about, if I, if I just made jokes about your child being beaten to a pulp at school, that joke won't be funny to you because that bothers you. It's not acceptable to you, right? If I made jokes, if I made a racist joke to you, I would hope you wouldn't find it funny. Why? I don't find it acceptable to look at people that way. I had somebody years ago make a joke right on the steps of the church, and he was visiting the church, made a joke right on the steps of the church about wanting to run over uh, people of another race. And he, it was a specific race, and you know, thinking it would be funny, running them over. And I was just shocked. And this was at church. I wasn't laughing, and it's not because I said, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's because that, that was so unacceptable to me as it should be to all of us. So you can't be entertained by something that you don't accept. You'd be bothered by it, right? So in order for us to be entertained by something, we have to on some level make peace with it. So the more you allow yourself to be entertained with something that goes contrary to the way God teaches us, the more you've allowed your heart to shift and say, well, it's okay. And don't be surprised when it's not a big issue to you anymore. But here's the thing I found, and let me just tell you in my own life. I found that I can't harden myself, I can't harden my heart in one area to God without it affecting all the other areas of my heart. There's no such thing as isolated hardening to God. Hardening your heart is like cancer. It spreads. So the best thing you can do is just say, I want to be soft to God. I want my heart to always be open to Him, never be hardened, because I want all of myself to be open to God. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. And, and we'll, we'll, we won't take much time on this. Verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's an important sentence, guys. I will not be mastered by anything. I won't be made a slave by my own body. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality. And once again, that's the Greek word, in, in, uh, porneo. So he's not talking about immorality like swearing. He's not, in this case, he's not talking about immorality as in like hitting somebody. In this case, he's talking about something specific. All those other things may come into view. But in this case, he's talking about specifically sexual immorality. The body is not designed for that. So if you use a car for what it's not designed for, you use your lawnmower for what it's not designed for, you use your barbecue for what it's not designed for, it will break. It will, it will have issues. Yeah. Right? Our body's the same way. God created it with a purpose. He says, but your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. That's a deep thought, but that's a really cool thought. My body was created for his glory. I'm supposed to carry the glory, to, the glory of my creator. I carry it around. Like that's, I demonstrate the glory of God as I walk around. I am in his image. We carry his glory. That was the first thing that mankind lost when they sinned was the image of the glory of God. But it was restored in Christ. We carry his glory around. So our bodies, Paul said, whether I live or die, I pray that Christ would be glorified in my body. You know, there was a, there was a teaching, and, and I don't want to take too long on this, but there was a teaching in the New Testament time that taught, and it was called aestheticism, and, and it tied in with Gnosticism. There was the idea that the spirit was always good and the body was always bad. So if you did bad stuff with your body, it's not your fault. The body is bad. Boys will be boys. But Scripture teaches us that Jesus died to redeem all of us. 
My spirit was made new in him. My body is being submitted to my spirit, and, and he owns it all. Like, my body can demonstrate the glory of God. It doesn't always have to be bad. It's good. It's a tool that God wants to use. You used it today. You used your feet to get here. You used your mouth to sing praise to God. You used your hands and lifted them to heaven. Your body is a tool that God's using. It's not bad. And sex isn't bad. And all these things are so good the way God created them. And it says this. Now God has not only raised the Lord, as in Jesus, but will raise us up through his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or don't you know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Now you may say, why do you keep talking about prostitutes? Because in, in, in Corinth at the time, prostitution was completely normal. It was in fact celebrated. Now here, he's not even talking to the prostitutes. He's talking to the people that go out and get them and participate in this. And he says, when you are acting, when you are experiencing that intimacy between man and woman, he says, the two are becoming one flesh. That is a physical demonstration of a spiritual union. And you don't just go around doing that. That was created for one purpose, and that's marriage. He says in verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He doesn't say your spirit is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say your mind is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says your body is meant to house the Spirit of God. That's huge, guys. Wow. God wants, to, wants this junky piece of meat. He wants this bag or whatever this is. Yeah, apparently he does. And he owns it. He died for it. <laughs> when we die, someday, Jesus is going to come back and redeem our bodies. And raise our bodies up. And then we'll be changed. And our bodies will be changed. We'll be given a different body. But he still died for this one. And in the end, he gets this one. That's a cool thought. I don't care if you got eaten by sharks. He still gets it. However he wants to work that out, he can work that out. <laughs> it says this. I, interesting, flee immor immorality. Flee it. What is it? Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. But in this case, he says, you just run the other way. Yeah. Stay away from it. Yeah. Every other sin that a man commits is outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. There's probably a ton more to say about all this, but I'm going to trust you're going to hear the voice of the Spirit because I found um, until you just believe that God is right, I could sit here for 15 hours and give you a thousand reasons why it's right to do it this way and you still wouldn't believe it. Once you believe that God is right and that he designed us a certain way and that's good, and that it's really good and you'll really have joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in every area if you just follow his way, then it doesn't take me spending six hours to tell you that. Right? I mean, ultimately, it's just a choice. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God wants you to have joy? Amen. Yeah. Do, you, do you believe that God wants you satisfied in life? Yeah? Let me ask you this. Uh, because a lot of times we separate spiritual satisfaction with everything else. Do you believe that God wants you physically satisfied? Yeah, yeah I believe he does too. I believe that the, the only way we're ever going to find real satisfaction in life is by going to the guy that designed us and saying, hey, I, I'm starting to read the owner's manual and I think you know what I was created for. 
So I'm going to follow your, I'm going to follow your way. I'm going to, because I think that's the way I was designed. And you'll find out that is the path to the greatest amount of joy you've ever felt, you've ever known. You'll find out that you're most satisfied when you're fully satisfied in him. I believe the solution to all of this is that we would know God. We'd grow closer to him. And we would desire not just to have his glory in our heads or in our hearts, but even in our bodies. You know, I know that there's people that are going to be single for the rest of their life. And you know what? There's plenty of scripture that says that's a really good thing. Don't ever let anybody make you feel like you're less a part of the church because you're single. You're married, that's a really good thing. Both of these things are really good things when we follow Jesus. Really good things. And I just want to encourage you guys. Listen, if you're here tonight or if you've got friends or if somebody's listening to this podcast and this is an area that you haven't fully come around to, um, let me encourage you with the fact that the people that this letter was written to were, were believers who hadn't, hadn't gotten control of this yet and uh, or didn't know any better. But once you know better, you do better, don't you? When you know better, you can believe God. And I want you to know that you are not, you're not less a part of the body, but I want you to make it your effort to obey the Lord. Because you know what? There's a difference between not knowing any better and living a certain way and, and openly rejecting God's plan for you. Openly rejecting God's plan for you never ends well. And um, so I want you to embrace God's plan. You know, if you're, if, you, if you're not married and you're living together, change your living arrangements. I'm just telling you that, not in condemnation, but I want you to, I want you to be well. And I want God to be glorified in you. I would encourage you to seek to please him. I've, I've discovered this plenty of times in Loon Lake and here that the Holy Spirit is pretty good to speak to people if they're listening. And I have plenty of people that say, we want to make it right. And uh, I had, you know, the people I found, you know, either they want to get married right away or they want to find a different arrangement or whatever, but they want to make it right right away. I found pretty consistently people that the Holy Spirit's worked on their hearts. They don't want to wait another day. They just want to make it right. And uh, I'd encourage you not to just get married so that you're not living in sin anymore because that's not a perfect solution either. Um, I would just encourage you, and this is practical, I would encourage you to seek the Lord whether this person is a person you're supposed to marry. Don't just marry him so that you can make your living arrangement holy. Right? Because a life partner is an important thing. If you need to just move out and figure it out, move out and figure it out. If you need help, we'll help you. We'll help you find a place to live because we love you. Um, And God understands your situation. He's not your enemy here. He is your helper. So I'd encourage you, once you make up your heart to obey the Lord, God will make a way for you to do it. In fact, the scripture says, with every temptation, he provides a way of escape. So if you're living a life that right now you say, I don't think that's honoring God, and I don't want to, but I don't know the way out, I believe God will provide a way of escape for you. And the people of God are not your enemy. Don't be ashamed to open up to your family. And say, listen, this is, I'm new at this. So, yeah, I just figured out, I just found out I was doing some things I shouldn't be doing. You know what? Praise the Lord. We're on your team here. We're on your side. And we'll help you. And we know that maybe, maybe you don't get everything, maybe, maybe you need to work on some stuff. I know young guys are working through the stuff they're, I mean, they're having to adjust how they look at the internet and how they do this. Well, we're here to help each other. Don't keep this stuff hidden in a closet. But bring people in on this battle so you can win it. Because the enemy wants to isolate you and make you feel alone. When he isolates you, he, can, he has, he, you know, sometimes we're just struggling the battle because we're alone. Bring some people in on this. Trust me, guys. Don't, be, don't let shame keep you from freedom. And I don't know. I mean, maybe all of you here tonight are like, not my, not my issue, pastor. <laughs> I've moved past this. We're doing fine, you know. But I know that people are listening to this. I know that maybe you have some people in the church that, that you want to help. And, and just don't, no condemnation, guys. Don't, don't be so ashamed you can't bring this forward into the light. 
is if you have a heart to serve God and a heart to obey the Lord, that's a great start. We'll start with that. We will help you. We'll help you get out. We'll help you figure this stuff out. But first, just start out with saying, you're right, God, and I, I want to I live like you created me to live. And I believe that he'll help you do that. Amen? Amen. Let's help one another, guys. Let's be on each other's side here. Let's really say, you know, I'm, I'm going to do more than just condemn the, action, the wrong actions. I'm going to help people make the right decisions. I mean, that's why I think that we're, we're pro-life people, aren't we? Yeah, pro-life people should be pro-adoption people, right? Because you don't just say it's wrong to do this. You've got you to say, well, this is the right thing. You know, we should, if, if we're going to tell somebody something's wrong, we better be able to help them do the right thing. And so I think we need to step up, guys, and help those amongst us that might be struggling with some of these issues and say, I'm here to help you because I love you. And I love you because he loved me, and we've all been there. So, you know, no matter where you're at, we're going the same direction together. Amen? Amen. Stand up with me.